Hi, my name is Martha. The Old Testament reading is found in Genesis chapter 16, beginning in the seventh verse. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Maddie. The New Testament reading is found in Romans 4, verses 13 and then 18 through 22. The promise to Abraham and to his descendants that he would inherit the world didn't come through the law, but through the righteousness that comes through faith. When it was beyond hope, he had faith in the hope that he would become the father of many nations. In keeping with the promise, God spoke to him. That's how many descendants you will have. Without losing faith, Abraham, who was nearly 100 years old, took into account his own body, which was as good as dead, and Sarah's womb, which was dead. He didn't hesitate with a lack of faith in God's promise, but he grew strong in faith and gave glory to God. He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. Therefore, it was credited to him as righteousness. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Roy. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading. Today's reading is found in Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 45. Mary got up and hurried to a city in the Judean highlands. She entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. With a loud voice, she blurted out, God has blessed you above all women, and he has blessed the child you carry. Why do I have this honor that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as I heard your greeting, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. Happy is she who believed that the Lord would fulfill the promises he made her. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's remain standing as we pray. Father, we ask that the Word of God would come to us breathed by the Spirit of God this morning. That the hearing of it would wake us up on the inside. Would make us come alive and change us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Everybody said, Amen. You may be seated. Well, earlier this summer, one of our kids went out early in the morning onto the deck, and we live in Rockerman, kind of on the west side there, and there was this little baby fawn. I guess that's redundant, a fawn that was sleeping on our deck. And and as soon as one of our kids had opened the door, the fawn was startled and tried to escape by squeezing through these two bars on the railing around our deck. Now, 
Unfortunately for this font, she got stuck right away. And so there's a bit of a slope on the other side of the deck. And so her head and shoulders and and front legs are through and kind of down on the slope. And then her hind legs are on the deck. And so we're all watching aghast with horror, thinking, oh, no, what's going to happen, you know? And and we think, well, don't worry. She'll sort this out, you know, like the quote from Jurassic Park, life always finds a way, you know, they will figure this out. And so we just stand in our, in our house, we're looking out the window, and 10 minutes passes, 15 minutes, and, and she hasn't figured it out. In fact, her mom comes, the mother deer comes around on the other side of the railing and is standing there trying to console her, trying to comfort her. They're, they're licking each other's faces. There's a lot of sounds happening, and now it's getting heartbreaking. Uh, my kids are looking at me like, Dad, do something, you know? And I know you're thinking that would be easy for me, the deer whisperer that I am. But but I sat there and I thought, this is it. This is the moment that my kids find out that I cannot do it all, you know. This is where their image of their dad, you know, actually came apart a long time ago. But, but I thought, okay, what, what should I do? And this is an, it's an old deck. It's, it's over 40 years old. I mean, a lot of the wood is totally rotting and we were about to tear it down that summer anyway. And so I thought, I know, I'll get a mallet and I'll try to just knock one of these little spindles and it probably it'll just fall right out, and then there goes the fun, you know. So I come out there very tentatively. I decide to test my hypothesis by knocking another, a different railing. That particular one didn't move. And I thought, it's okay. The one by the fawn has to be loose. So I go over very carefully, not to startle the deer so as not to get kicked. And I just carefully, you know, hit it. And not only does it not budge, but now the fawn starts bleating. Would you say that? Uh, Even more loudly. And it's just this, oh, it's so sad. And I'm thinking, all I have is a handsaw and a circle saw. And neither of those, I mean, I don't know a lot, but I know that neither of those would probably be the right tool. So after a while of watching this, an hour passes, we finally decide we need to call, you know, a wildlife uh, control or something like that. Turns out there's a volunteer person and this, this wonderful volunteer gentleman came by and he had I don't even know what it's called, guys, but it's like the kind of handheld electric saw, you know, like a sawzall or something like that, and he just went, and it, boom, and the thing opened up, and the fawn went free, and we were all, there was peace in the universe uh, once again, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, okay, uh, <laughs> sure, clap, um, but <laughs> I'm telling you that story as a way of saying, <clears throat> I was reflecting on that story as I was thinking about this text this morning, because we were all experiencing a sense of powerlessness that day. The fawn most profoundly was feeling a sense of powerlessness. The rest of us were thinking, what do we do? How can we help? What should we do? And how there are situations in life where we find ourselves stuck. We find ourselves unable to get free, unable to move, unable to act, unable to change a circumstance for a loved one. There are all kinds of situations in life where we find ourselves experiencing a profound sense of powerlessness. We're in this series in the book of Genesis through the life of Abraham. And my hope has been that as we've gone through the series, even for a few weeks, that you've discovered that this is not really the story of Abraham's faith. It's really the story of God's faithfulness. In fact, when you read the the opening chapter, Genesis 12, it's, it's not so much. Right away, we see Abraham's fear leading him to make mistakes that are all a mess. 
Genesis 1 through 11, the the story moves very quickly about God making the world and then the world coming apart because of human sin and rebellion. And Genesis 12 is when the story slows down and you begin to see God start to put the world together again through this man and through this man's family, Abraham and his family. But you realize very quickly that these people need saving too. They are a mess. They too are stuck. Now, very often, Genesis 16 is preached as a story about sort of this moral lesson of, well, don't be like Abraham. You know how he didn't trust God. He'd had that whole thing with Hagar and Ishmael. And it's all about Abram's lack of faith. And that's fine. There's something to be gained from that perspective. But I couldn't help reading it and studying it this week. I couldn't help but see that this story is not so much about Abraham's lack of faith as much as it is about God's surprising faithfulness to a female slave named Hagar. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis 16, verse 1. If you've got your phone or your iPad, you can scroll there. We're going to read a few of these verses. Verse 1, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai, now, by the way, all three of those descriptors mean a great deal in the ancient world. Female in the ancient world was regarded as far, far less than male. Egyptian, that means outside of the chosen people, chosen family, and slave. Some modern English translations have tried to soften it by calling it handmaiden as if she were the chambermaid for Sarah in Downton Abbey or something like that. It's nothing like this. It was, it's, the more, it's, it's more brutal than that. She was a slave. And, and if you, you have to see this to catch how surprising God's grace is in the story. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, and it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. This phrase is the exact same Hebrew construction, same grammar, same setup as a phrase earlier in Genesis where Eve said to Adam, Take the fruit. And it says, And Adam listened to Eve. It's the same parallel thing. Now, The reason it's parallel is not because, oh, the Bible's trying to tell us men should not listen to their wives. (laughs) I have no doubt some preachers have probably tried to make that text uh, say that conclusion. I I don't see it that way at all. In fact, I think there is a a lot of, uh, um, uh, there's a metaphorical masterpiece, master storyteller at work here. And he's trying to say to us, in both scenes, there is a voice that says, Go on and take matters into your own hands. A voice that whispers, go on and take the fruit and you will be like God. A voice that says, go on and take my slave. And and this is how God will bring about his work. And there is the response of a human saying, okay, yeah, I'll do that. Rather than listening to God, they listened to the voice of sin that said, go ahead and take matters into your own hands. Skip down with me to verse 5. And Sarai said to Abraham, Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. She's basically cursing him. She's saying, okay, now, as a result, yes, you took Hagar. Now she's pregnant. And now Hagar scorns me. So may the wrong be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. And so now may the Lord judge between you and me. I mean, this is a marriage squabble to like a very different degree, you know, than some of us might be familiar with. I mean, just in case, just imagine these household dynamics. Imagine this. 
Because sometimes we tell ourselves, oh, the Bible's full of stories of perfect people, and so there's no way it has anything to say to me. My life's a mess. I'm not all put together. Well, hello. I hope in these first few verses you see this is a story of messy, imperfect, broken, dysfunctional people, however you want to name it, right? This is a mess of a, of a domestic fight. And Abram said to Sarah, behold, your servant's in your power. Do to her whatever you please. Good man of integrity. Hey, look, if you're, if you're upset, go ahead and take out your anger. Abuse your slave. And Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. And then the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, now listen to this. This is the first instance of an angel of the Lord appearing to anyone in the book of Genesis. This is the first instance of it. And the angel says, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? When God asks a question, he's usually staging an intervention. When God asks a question, he's usually staging an intervention. He's about to do something here. Think about the other times in the book of Genesis alone when God asked a question. Adam and Eve have sinned. They're hiding in the, in the garden. And God comes walking in the garden. He says, Adam, where are you? He's not looking for knowledge that he doesn't have. He's staging an intervention. Adam, I want to know, do you know where you are? When Cain has murdered his brother Abel and God finds Cain, he says, Cain, where is your brother? Where is your brother? These questions that come from God are the beginning of an intervention. It's God beginning to say, okay, I want you to pay attention. And so he says, Hagar, he names her and he names her situation of powerlessness. How people are named in the Bible is immensely important. Later on in the Old Testament, you'll see Bathsheba, whom David has an affair with, commits adultery with. She's not named as Bathsheba for a while. She's named as the wife of Uriah, just in case you forgot, David, right? And Hagar is named here. Hagar, servant of Sarai. A way of saying, I know your name, and I know your situation of powerlessness. I know how stuck you are. And then the angel says in verse 10, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for a multitude. You're saying, hang on. This was the promise that God gave to Abram. This is the promise in Genesis 12. This is the promise in Genesis 15. You have no business telling a female Egyptian slave that she, her offspring is going to number a multitude. Well, hang on, God. The promise doesn't apply to Hagar. Except that God says it does. Except that with God, His grace reaches beyond the people that we think it should reach. Except that with God, He is always reaching to the outer boundary to say, no, 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 let's bring you in. Anyone who tries to tell you grace doesn't exist in the New Testament, read this story. In the Old Testament, read this story. Here is the grace of God calling to Hagar. If you ever wondered, is the promise of God only for people who have their lives put together? <laughs> no. No. 
Can I participate in the promise of God? Can I participate in the saving story of God? Can I join in this story? Is this really the story of us? Or is this the story of good, perfect church people? Genesis 16 says, it can be your story. It's not just for Abram, it's for Hagar. This promise is going to be yours. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. That very name, Ishmael, the God who hears. It's, it's echoed later when a woman named Hannah will have a son named Samuel, Shemuel. It's that same Hebrew root that connects these, these names. The God who listens even to a person who seems stuck. Stuck on the outside. Stuck outside of the promise. And then this is how Hagar responds in verse 13. And so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. And she said, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here have I seen him who looks after me. This is again a play on the Hebrew words. She's saying, I see the God who sees me. And this Hebrew sense of the word see is much more than the physical act of, oh yes, I've seen. It is this deep sense of, I am looking after you. I see you. Now, here is something even more surprising. In the Bible, the revelation of God or the picture of who God is, is a picture that slowly comes into focus as we read the pages of Scripture. And so early on in the Old Testament, they're, they're, they're saying, I think we see God like this. I think He wants us to do this. And they sometimes get it right and they sometimes don't, right? The picture comes fully in focus when? When Jesus arrives. And they say, behold, now we've seen it. The God full of grace and truth. We've seen it. The only begotten Father. Jesus is the, the clearest picture of what God is like. But every time in the Old Testament someone gets a glimpse of what God is like, they name God. Every time someone in the Old Testament gets a glimpse of what God is like, they name God. Guess who's the first person to name God? Hagar. Hagar. You're like, wait a minute, Genesis 22, Abraham names God Jehovah Jireh, Yahweh, Yireh, the God who provides after the whole Isaac thing, right? I mean, it's Abraham, right? Actually, before Abraham named God as the provider, Hagar names God. As the God who sees. God sees Hagar. And you could flip this phrase around and say, and Hagar sees God. She is given a glimpse. Hagar is given a glimpse, a glimpse, a revelation, a picture of who God is. And the picture she gets is of a God who sees. God who sees. I want you to hear that this morning, friends. That in the middle of your suffering, in the middle of your difficulty, God sees you. And no, it's not fair. And for some of you, it's not even your fault. And for others of you, there may not even be a change anytime soon. 
And maybe it's enough to hang on just by this thread to say, and yet, and still, if I am like Hagar, if I had to go back to the house of slavery, and yet, I go back with a different knowledge, that God sees me. But the story doesn't end there for us. Because I think it's possible to end there, and then what ends up happening is we start to rationalize oppression and injustice wherever we see it. We're like, well, I don't know, we can't change it, but hey, God sees you. Cheer up. The book of James has a warning against not being believers like that. Don't see a situation that you can change and say, well, be blessed and be fed. Good luck with that. Don't do that. The power of the gospel church is that you become people who not only are convinced that God sees you, but you become a people who begin to see others. You begin to see others. That's when you know the gospel is starting to really mess with you because now it's not just, oh, God sees me. I'm his child. This is so great, so great, so awesome. I just love, oh, cuddly God, cuddly Father in heaven. You see me? That is, there is something profoundly beautiful. And in a sense, we never move on from that. We always live in that place. And yet, the sign that we are really living in that place is that we actually begin to see others. Who is the female Egyptian slave living in the wilderness that God might send us as an angel of the Lord to find her and to speak kindly to her in the wilderness? You know, in the Bible, angel is used sometimes synonymously with just the word messenger. Who might you be a messenger to? Who could you be the messenger of the Lord and to say, look, I see you. And to see a person means asking the very same questions that, God, that the angel of the Lord asked Hagar in the wilderness. You remember what he asked her? He said, where have you come from? And where are you going? You want to be a messenger of the Lord that finds other people and says to them, God sees you. You know what it requires? It requires being able to say to a person, what's your story? Where have you come from? Where are you going? I don't want to just see this moment, because this moment might skew the evidence, might skew my conclusions. I'll give you an example of this. Yesterday I was on a plane, and I, was flying, I had an earlier flight that was a long um, flight from, uh, that, you know, it was a nine-hour flight. And my connecting flight was a short, like, 90-minute flight. And I was on that second connecting flight looking around and thinking, none of us really know where each other has come from. Is this the only flight you've taken today? Is this the first of a series of flights? Are you coming from a funeral? Are you going to a family member who's aging? I don't know where you're going. I don't know where you're coming. All we see is how people are on the flight, right? And we can be quite judgmental about how people are on a flight. Right? If there's a kid of a baby crying, you're like, oh my gosh, get your kid under control. What if they're just coming home from a, a, a missions trip or they've been, on, they've been on the mission field and they're coming home on furlough and they've just had 20 hours of flying and this little flight from Dallas to Denver is just the last of a very long journey and a little compassion would go a long way. You see, sometimes we need to know, where have you come from? And where are you going? And as I was thinking about this this week, 
There are probably dozens and dozens of examples I could give, but I want to, to choose three that I know have the potential to really upset you this morning. But I don't want you to let the Bible be an abstract concept. I don't want you to think of Hagar as a nice figure who's a footnote in the story. So I was thinking about this question this week. What's it like to be black in America? Sometimes all we see is what's happening right now. And, oh, I don't know if I understand this, and I don't know if I agree with that. And, I don't know. and you can be so hidden behind political positions and Facebook posts and somebody's hot take of the, of the day that you miss the person. And you haven't taken time to ask the story, where have you come from? Where are you going? Tell me what it's like to be you. Tell me what that feels like. This morning, you may not have known it, but that last song we sang is an old spiritual, Give Me Jesus. No doubt we didn't sing it the way it might have been, been sung. But I've been reading a book about the old black spirituals and the kind of experience that gave birth to those songs. I have a particular interest in songs and where they come from. And songs have a way of carrying experience. And I'm learning. James Cone writes, Slavery meant being regarded as property like horses and cows and household goods. For blacks, the auction block was one potent symbol of their subhuman status. The block stood for brokenness. Because on sale days, no family ties were recognized. My brothers and sisters were bid off first and one by one recalled Josiah Henson, while my mother, paralyzed by grief, held me by the hand. And when Moses Grandy's wife was sold, he was permitted only to stand at a distance and speak with her before she was taken away. My heart was so full, he remembered, that I could say very little. Slavery meant working 15 to 20 hours a day and being beaten for showing fatigue. It meant being driven into the field three weeks after delivering a baby. It meant having the cost of replacing you calculated against the value of your labor during a peak season so that your owner could decide whether or not to work you to death. It meant being whipped for crying over a fellow slave who had been killed while trying to escape. On and on it goes. What's it like to be black in America? What's it like to go into a convenience store after 10 o'clock at night and know that in some places people are going to at first perceive you with fear? Or suspicion? What's it like for a father to have to tell his son, be careful when you wear hoodies, keep the hood down, you don't want to look like you're up to no good? What's it like? What's it like to be a refugee from Syria? What's it like to be a doctor one day with your kids in a nice school and all of a sudden war takes over? Your town is in rubbles. What's it like to live in a shipping container for year after year, wondering when it's going to end? What's it like 
to think of life as being so difficult that it's worth taking the risk of drowning just to get on a boat to try to find your way to France. What's it like to wake up one morning and find that your neighborhood is in rubble and your eight-year-old brother is dead? What's it like? What's it like to be homeless, to experience homelessness in Colorado Springs? What's it like? (laughs) We can ask Marvin. And I'm saying this to you because there are times that we get so entrenched in positions that we lose sight of people. So entrenched in how to think about issues that you've forgotten the person. And God saw Hagar that day. And God saw Hagar that day. I want to see. And it means listening. It means asking bold questions. And it means listening. One of the reasons we're doing this city serve day is not so we can pat ourselves on the back and say, oh, I've got to check, I've done my good deed for the year. Now I don't have to feel guilty about all the spending I'm going to have during Christmas, you know. One of the reasons we do it, Saturday morning, October 8th, is so that you can see what's it like to live in the apartment complexes east of downtown Colorado Springs. What's it like to be in Knob Hill, Park Hill? What's it like? You need to go. You need to see. You need to know. Why? Because God sees. And we make a mockery of grace when we say, God, you see me. And then we turn a blind eye to other people right around us. We can't do it. Can't do it. Both women in Genesis 16 are powerless. Both women in Genesis 16 are powerless. Sarai is powerless because of her barrenness. This story for Paul, Paul will start to read this story allegorically. He'll start to use a bit of theological imagination and say, you know, Sarai and Hagar, this is really a story about the law versus grace. This is really a story about not being able to achieve for ourselves the thing we need the most. And of course, I would say, Paul, thank you for that insight. You're right. Because Sarai's barrenness led her, her own powerlessness led her to try to take over. And the gospel in that moment is to say, is to to recognize that the belief that we have to take over is actually the beginning of sin. The belief that we have to, I've got to take over, I've got to change it, I've got to fix it, I've got to make it happen, I've got to change. Now listen. There's a kind of powerlessness which we are meant to try to overcome and to say, no, you know what, I am going to take some initiative. I'm going to take some response. There's a, kind, there's a sense in which we're saying, yes, thank you for empowering me. There's a good sense. But in a spiritual sense, the way Paul understands this story, at our very core, we are powerless to save ourselves. Or to put it another way, we are all powerless to accomplish or to gain the thing we actually need the most. The thing we actually need the most is where we find that we are the most powerless. 
Now, I know there's a, there's a wonderful move that, that's saying, oh, you know what? If we could just love ourselves, then we'll be okay. And I'm good. I'm, I, I think a healthy view of yourself is better than the sh- a shameful view of yourself. I think that's great insofar as it goes. But it's worth saying that the kind of love you really long to be loved with is the kind of love that you can never give yourself. The kind of love you really long to be loved with, you could never give yourself. You're powerless in that way. And so for Sarai, the belief that we have to take over is actually the beginning of sin. Every sin has at its root self-reliance. The lie that says, well, I don't need God. I can make my life better. And Hagar is powerless too, but in a different way, she's powerless as a slave. And I want to just say this. Because some of you will say, I bet I'm reading the story, Glenn, and God sends her back. That is not liberation. You're right. But that's also not where the Bible ends. So sometimes you might hear someone or maybe someone at school or professor or whatever say, oh, the Bible doesn't do anything to undo slavery. I mean, look, God sends Hagar back to her master. But you've got to keep reading in the Scripture because in the New Testament there's another runaway slave named Onesimus. And Paul says, he's not coming back as a slave. He's coming back as a brother. And the beginning of the gospel, as Paul begins to unpack it, not only makes slavery impossible or makes it no longer sustainable, it explodes it, but it also says, this is how we all become part of one family together. This is how we become part of one family together. We don't subjugate one another. This is not how it works. But... In the spiritual reading of this story, this allegorical, this theological imagination reading that Paul uses, Hagar's return back to the house is a way of saying, look, the call to become aware of our powerlessness is actually the beginning of repentance, is actually the beginning of repentance. The most offensive thing about the gospel is that that you have to, at some point, usually very early on, admit that you don't have the power to save yourself. That you're stuck and you can't change it. The, The call to become aware of our powerlessness to save ourselves is the beginning of repentance. But in our powerlessness to save ourselves, God sees us. And saves us. And here it is. Here is the gospel. That when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were considered outsiders, Paul says to the Ephesians, once you were afar off, once you were outsiders to the promise, once you were like Hagar. But God has brought you in. God sees us and saves us. Which brings us to the very heart of grace. That the promise of God is not something to be achieved. It is only to be received. The promise of God is not something to be achieved. It is only to be received. Now I think, I think that for some of us, maybe our eyes are half closed to the situations of people around us Because we haven't yet fully believed that God's promise is not something we are meant to achieve on our own. 
Because we still live like spiritual slaves. We used to live like people that says, well, I don't know if God sees me. I don't know if anyone sees me. So all I need to do is try to, I'm like Sarai. I'm trying to take over. I'm trying to make God's promise happen. If I do this, then God will do this. Isn't that in the Bible, Glenn? It is only to show that it doesn't work out. Over and over again. And that's why our New Testament reading in Romans, Paul says, look, in the end, Abraham was credited as righteous because he was able to believe God for the promise. And Elizabeth says to Mary, the blessed mother of our Lord, she says, oh, blessed is the woman to whom God keeps his promise. And I want to say to you, friends, This isn't about the itty-bitty micro things about our lives. Oh, God, what about this promise here? I'm talking about the greatest promise of all, the promise to put our lives back together, the gift of grace, of salvation. God has kept his promise to us. And so we come Sunday after Sunday after Sunday to the communion table. Why? To receive again. To say, God, your grace has already been given, so I receive again. Communion is not an achievement, right? This isn't a potluck. You didn't bring the elements. (laughs) The Lord's table is a feast that he has given by his own life. 